this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. It's the Pittsburgh Oddcast. Welcome everybody back to the Pittsburgh Oddcast. My name is Andrew Lindbergh, and with me as always is the founder of Odd Pittsburgh, John Chalkowski. Well, hello everybody. This week, I decided to uh, kind of gather some odds and ends, if you will. Yeah, a little cleanup edition. <laughs> That's right, a little cleanup edition. And we could actually do more of these types of shows because uh, it's a little different than the trilogy of tales that we've done where we do uh, three specific tales or maybe four, you know, uh, not necessarily a trilogy anymore. But the point being, there's a lot of things that you kind of come across that don't really, uh, you know, I couldn't spend a whole show on just talking about the one thing. So this is a kind of little, uh, like a best of, of the weird bits and pieces, odds and ends, nicks and knacks, you know, strange tidbits and, and all that, um, that I've kind of came across. During my uh, investigative research into the history of Pittsburgh. And I, I want to start with uh, a creed. So the Pittsburghers creed. Yeah, you've posted this a few times on your page. Yeah, in fact, um, it's usually my go-to thing, you know, for civic pride <laughs> in the city of Pittsburgh. And, uh, and it really has been for many years. Uh, a little bit forgotten for a while until... It uh, kind of had a resurgence once I've uh, uncovered it in this book from 19, I believe it was the 1908 uh, celebration of Pittsburgh. They republished it in that book, and another historian actually published it in a book in the 1920s. And uh, that was kind of how I came across it first. Uh, the story behind how it was written, uh, we're going to talk about a little bit, because uh, that was a little bit of a mystery, because it was just a, a name and nothing else. But uh, I give a lot of public speeches, a lot of lectures, like talks to uh, schools everywhere, including uh, you know elementary schools. And I even there, the third graders, fourth graders, I try to make sure to always read the Pittsburghers' Creed. The first thing I do. So without further ado, I bring you the Pittsburghers' Creed. I believe in Pittsburgh, the powerful, the progressive. I believe in the past of Pittsburgh and the future founded on that heritage of that past of clean living, frugal, industrials, men and women of poise, power, purity, genius, and courage. I believe that her dominant spirit is, has been, and always will be for the uplift and betterment. I believe that my neighbor stands for the same faith in Pittsburgh, although his expression may vary from mine. I believe in Pittsburgh of the present and her people, possessing the virtues of all nations, fused through the melting pot to a greater potency for good. I believe in taking pride in our city, its institutions, its people, its habit. I believe in the great plans born of initiative, foresight, and civic patriotism in the midst of the great men of today, here and now. I believe that the Pittsburghers who truly represent her are those of God-fearing lives, scorning ostentation and the seats of the ungodly, building surely, quietly, and permanently. I believe that those who know Pittsburgh love her, her rocks and rills and templed hills, I believe that Pittsburgh's mighty forces are reproduced in its mighty people, staunch like the hills, 
and true like steel. The end. <laughs> so <laughs> that is the Pittsburghers Creed. Um, I came across that randomly about five years ago now. Yeah. Uh, posted it on everything. It's in fact it's my pinned tweet on Twitter, um, and uh, I try to share it as much as I possibly can. And uh, a little side note before I talk about who actually wrote this Pittsburgh Creed, um, I, I'd say about four years ago now, I had a random message uh, from a, a rapper who I didn't really know at the time. Uh, and, I, and I have a lot of, oddly enough, I have a lot of rappers that contact me through social media. Well, you're a hip hop mogul. Well, that I am, you know, and call me Dr. John. <laughs> but I think that was already taken. Oh. Dr. John. There you go. The bearded John. <laughs> so uh, the the message was that this person read the Pittsburgh Creed from my page, printed it out, kept it in his wallet, and would reread it every single night before bed. Now, as much as I want to believe that this person actually did this, uh, which would be absolutely incredible. I mean, I'm sure you can't do it every single night, but at least I had enough gumption to send me a message and and say that this really was impactful to them and inspired them in some ways. It was none other than Mac Miller. Really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I didn't even know who he was uh, four years ago, which is a shame. Uh, otherwise, I probably could have talked to him more. So he know? reached out to you? Yeah, with a thank you, just saying that he appreciated me posting that Pittsburgh's Creed and that he reads it before bed every night. Like a direct message? Or yeah. was this? Yes. Wow. Yeah, I know. <laughs> so I was... Uh, uh, I was blown away. Like, I had no idea that something that profound, and it is a profound creed, you know, uh, a, a point of civic pride could uh, remind anybody if no matter where you are, you know, you come across this and read this, it means the same to you as it does to us sitting here, uh, you know, in Western Pennsylvania. You could be in Honolulu and read the same thing, and it's going to inspire you to, uh, you know, to, for civic good. And, I mean, it really does it tells you to look at the history, you know, the respect the present and be happy and look forward to the future. Well, you could tell Mac was a big fan of Pittsburgh. I mean, he wrote Party on Fifth Avenue. Right. His first album, Blue Slide Park. Exactly. You know. Yeah. So, I mean, it was incredible. <laughs> that connection. I've uh, Why I said there was multiple ones, because I've actually had multiple white rappers <laughs> um, reach out to me uh, with with these tales of inspiration. Uh, which I've, I have somebody from Westview that was uh, really into this and, and did a, kind of a similar Mac Miller path, but just didn't make it break, you know, big yet. But he's, he's talented, this guy. I mean, but so, anyways, back to the who wrote the Pittsburghers Creed. Okay. I had to find that out because, uh, I mean, it couldn't just be anybody. And uh, it first appeared, okay, in 1905. There was a clerk at this place called the Pen Paper Box Company, which was located at 302 Ross Street downtown. And he soon became the manager, this guy, named James G. Connell Jr. And in 1913, he decided to write this Pittsburgh's Creed. Not for any kind of publication or to be published in the Post-Gazette or the press or anything. Just as kind of like a, a thing that he wanted to work on personally and published through this Pittsburgh or the pen paper box company. Um it was the type of thing that paper companies would usually like put on postcards or things like that as an example of their work and would just send out for free. Uh, but he uh, took a turn for the worse, and uh, it's unclear exactly how he passed away, but at the age of 33 years old, was found dead in, on the floor of that company. 
and uh, this essentially became his legacy. Yeah. Um, yeah. So uh, I'm glad that he left this. I'm glad that he wrote this. Um, it, it's amazing to find out these kind of everyday Pittsburghers, you know, were just inspired by what they saw around them. Uh, had enough gumption to write it down, and we're talking about it today in 2020. So uh, thank you, Mr. James G. Connell Jr. And the Pittsburghers Creed. We actually will read another Pittsburgh poem, uh, but not until the end. First, I want to talk about another strange and weird, odd and end, <laughs> and that is this weird sculpture. Andy, I'm handing you a photo. Of the strangest thing uh, I think yes, I've ever this, seen at the uh, Carnegie Museum of Art, yeah. of all places. Um, so why don't you describe what you're looking at? Uh, it's a statue. It has a uh, tribal-type mask face, and then it appears that there are nails all over, kind of like the opposite of Hellraiser, <laughs> where the nails stick out. The ones, these are like the, the butt ends. Yeah, and not only on his head, but basically every single part of the statue's body, there is a nail. Everything from little pin nails to railroad spikes. And then in the uh, stomach area, there's an empty rectangle. Yeah. Does that look like a positive kind of uh, statue or maybe uh, a negative? I don't know if you really want to judge art just by the way it looks, but (laughs) this photo, you really do have to see it to believe it. What I'm talking about, I, I, it has a lot of, it has a steampunk kind of feel to it, but the head and the body is a little bit more. It looks something like prehistoric or something from a developing culture. That's exactly right, and that's exactly what it is. So, in 1928, this bizarre wooden idol, they call it, or the precise name is a nail fetish. Okay, and uh, not uh, Lee Presson nails, but nails, uh, like I said before, pin nails, everything up to railroad spikes, okay? And the real name of it is Nakisi Nakondi, okay? And it is a tribal um, kind of idol that was meant to tell stories and as well as um, perform pagan oaths. So let me explain a little bit about how the Carnegie Museum got in touch and acquired this item, because <laughs> it's a weird item. They have a lot of weird things there, but this is pretty weird. Like nine-foot giants? Yeah, exactly, like nine-foot-tall, gigantic people. <laughs> um, anyways, this is an excerpt from the Pittsburgh Press. Okay, Now, if you go to the Carnegie Muse- uh, Museum of Arts website or try to look for information, you'll see that this used to be on display, and I do remember it being there as a kid. Uh, seeing it because it was so weird looking. It's, you don't even want to look at this thing in the eyes, um, let alone uh, even talk. I'm a, I feel funny even talking about it, okay? Because <laughs> let me explain how the Carnegie acquired it. And I believe that they don't know this story themselves. So this is kind of breaking news uh, 100 years later. Um, from the Pittsburgh Press, July 1st, 1928, the fierce-eyed fetish resting in an exhibition case on the third floor of the Carnegie Museum has plenty of stories locked inside its wooden heart. A story for every rusty nail of the hundreds that bristle over the squat body of the idol. <laughs> so that's how this article starts out. The background of those tales will never be told. For its course, if savage drums pounding in the hot darkness of the old African country of yesteryear, it sways with the rhythm of wild dancers and echoes to the chants of their voices. 
It whispers of the awful mysteries of primitive religions, of strange, blood-hungry gods. The wooden idol was brought from the upper Sancta region of the African Congo by men who risked their own very lives against the anger of the tribesmen whose members worshipped this nail fetish. The explanation of the nails is that in certain Congo tribes consummated an oath by driving the nail into the fetish. The belief that is if the oath was broken, the god of the fetish would punish the transgressor with death. There is an even more grim tale in connection with this nail-driving practice. There was one who worshipped at this fetish could produce vengeance on any enemy by driving a, driving a nail into the idol. It was believed that this would result in the death of his enemy, the same as if the nail had been driven through its very soul. Priests went into the jungle to sacred places to procure this idol. They were careful not to mention the name of any living man or woman. If one of the savages spoke the name of a man, it was believed that the one mentioned would die within ten days, and that his soul would then pass on to the idol for eternity. Perhaps the witch doctors made certain that their victim would die in order to uphold their powers and beliefs of the community. The nails of the body of the fetish were all finds in all sizes, and from small box nails to railroad spikes, the powers of the nails are enchanted by chains and pieces of wire attached to them. The entire body is completely covered in nails. That's a little bit origin of what the Pittsburgh Press mentions about the procuring of this or the, you know, getting the actual idol, but doesn't mention how it got to Pittsburgh. It just talks about what this thing is. Well, it sounds a little bit like the, that movie, The Ring. <laughs> it's exactly you, like the movie, The Ring. <laughs> and what, seven days later, you die. Or uh, well, it gets weirder. Ready? Uh, this is from 1959, Pittsburgh Press. African art expert meets old friend at the Carnegie. And it was about this older woman named Mrs. Webster Plass, a world-traveled author, lecturer, and collector of art objects, met an old friend in Pittsburgh yesterday. She was delighted to see him, but his expression was very wooden. The friend on display was in the J. Left collection of the Carnegie Museum. It's a carved African fetish about 18 inches high, which once belonged to Mrs. Plass and her husband. We got it in the Belgian Congo, she began. Her husband, who died in 1952, was an engineer consultant, and Margaret Plass went with him on his travels around the world as an engineer. It was in Elizabethville, she went on, that I met a village boy belonging to the Bassong tribe, and asked him if there were any kind of idols or any interesting things among his local tribe. He brought, soon brought to me later, this strange object to our hotel. She laughed as she remembered. I put it in a bathtub and asked the boy to scrub it, for it seems that an Africans treated this fetish with blood and all manners of bits and bobs to make it potent. And potent it was, especially to a sensitive nose. The boy who even objected to cleaning the aisle, saying, No, ma'am. The magic, she go. <laughs> so that's the story of the idol, which is in the Carnegie Museum in storage now. But I always wondered, um, you know, what if, what if it works? What if you went down there and, uh, you know, hammered that one more nail in there? Yeah. Now, what if you double-crossed it? <laughs> right. Yeah, but yeah. then for the, uh, you know, the Your skeptic. Your soul becomes trapped inside this thing for all eternity. Now think about the people's beliefs and all these nails that are actually are in it. These people believe that. For the... Is there anybody inside this statue? I don't no. know. <laughs> no, there's not. Well. It's just a piece of wood with nails. That does get very curious, doesn't it? Yes. So. I'm the skeptic of the group, though. I. That's good. That's a good thing to be skeptical. I just think it's a piece of wood. Of course. 
Like there's that, uh, we were watching a documentary about a year ago about um, there's this doll in Florida mm-hmm. that uh, apparently you're not supposed to say bad things about or it'll haunt you or kill you. And Same same concept. I just told him like, you know what, screw you, whatever buddy your name is or whatever. Like you're just a piece of wood. Right, but, right. But the stories are a little disconcerting when you hear what happens. Yeah. Well, now think about that story is from the African Congo. And these are stories that we'll never know. These stories attached to this item. It's randomly sitting in a box now, um, waiting to be, uh, you know, I I mean, I don't know. (laughs) So, pretty interesting thing. So, anyways, that's one of the odds. Here's one of the bits, okay, is... uh, You have them labeled. Oh, I do, I do. I have odds, bits. Here you go. All right, so, um, ends, of course, ends. You know, can't forget those. Um... There was a little book that was put out called um, <coughs> Ruffians, Robbers, Rogues, Rascals, and Cutthroats of Pittsburgh, PA. <laughs> and this was a book written in the 1930s. Um, and Cutthroats. Cutthroats, I would have went yes. with Rapscallions to keep in the alliteration. Mm, I, I, I will have to write him. <laughs> um, so in, uh, he went on to kind of do the same thing I did, really, uh, but this is in this one tiny little paper. Oh, sorry. This, this is actually an article from 1972. However, this information was procured uh, along before that. And um, I want to read you two little stories that this guy uncovered. And one of them I've actually found on my own, oddly enough, and he posted it here in this paper from 1972. But I also stumbled across the same thing because it is just that weird. Uh, You don't normally see things like this written in the newspapers. And what he looked at was this article that appeared in the Pittsburgh Gazette, December 23rd, 1780. Okay, and uh, he was talking about how, you know, just because people lived in the past, 1780, doesn't mean they did not have humor. You know, uh, they were still people after all. And uh, we talk about that all ad nauseum uh, on our show because it's important to remember that these people did everything that we do, um, you know, by the same mentality. You know, even going back, let's say, 5,000 years ago, people still had the same mentality. You know, you didn't. That didn't change as much. Um, it became more convenient in this day and age, but the mentality is still there. Yeah. Uh, you know, you can go as far back as, uh, you know, what do they call it? Your primal, you know, Primal motives. brain. Your primal brain, you your, know. The reptilian brain. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so, December 23rd, 1780, in the Pittsburgh Gazette, this little article appeared. July the 27th day, my wife Betty ran away. From bed and board did flee and say she would no longer with me stay. Since she has left me without cause, I'll give her time enough to pause, that she may see her heir when I live happily with a fairer. Therefore I forewarn, both great and small, to trust her anything at all. For her contracts from this day, not one farthing will I pay. That was from a man named Dennis O'Brien. So, um, you could tell that uh, some people, while it was obviously a, some kind of divorce or separation type of uh, ad that he put in the Post-Gazette, or uh, that, uh, you know, sometimes you have a little fun with it. And this next one is a prime example of that. Well, we did that with we did that with Rick Seaback. Our, our show with uh, clickbait of the 18th yeah, that century. Yeah, that was part of the clickbait of the 18th century. That's right. It, because there's lots of articles like this, you know. Or the one, how about that one from that episode where we had the... Uh, the whole story is about this dog, you know, the whole like the whole paragraph all about this dog and how he did not survive 
Uh, but but the, the very last sentence on that one article <laughs> talks the, about uh, the fifteen year old body that's been in there. Yeah, the mummified the remains mummified. of a torso, a woman's torso, or something goofy. You know, they were found in the basement. But the whole story is about a dog. I, you know, so yeah. Episode two, go. Yeah, you you, uh, scroll back a little bit. On yeah, here. you want to hear uh, Rick Seebeck uh, read some Pittsburgh clickbait? <laughs> um, definitely tune in. So it it doesn't stop right there, right? Uh, there's another great example from 1820. Okay, and uh, this guy uh, was a uh, uh, in the headline was stop the villain. Okay, it was uh, for a fifty dollar reward for the apprehension of a person described hereafter. And I'm going to read you a little bit of what he how he described him in the newspaper, and it's genius. <laughs> okay, 1820, so two hundred years ago, almost to the day. Wanted. Okay, of course. $50 reward. He's about 26 or 27 years old. Five feet, five inches high, of a very, uh, kind of slightly dark complexion. Stout male, has curly hair, of a very genteel appearance. He walks boldly, round-faced, squinting a little bit just in his left eye. Sharp nose and chin rather so. Small whiskers, wears a small bordered hat. A stirred out with a brown velvet collar and sometimes a dark green coat, pretty much worn, similar to his other black velvet collar, and sometimes gray or nankeen ones. He has a new blue suit of clothes he wears on particular occasions, all but the stood out being French-made. He also generally wears Monroe boots, and he has a handsome French gold figured-faced repeating watch hung around his neck by a steel chain. His watch chain is gold and his seals a common jewelry gold. He has a small finger ring set with a diamond, a breast pin with a false diamond, commonly wears ruffled shirts, black waistcoat, and generally a black cravat. Being a musician by profession, he carries a violin box with two trunks, one very small and one very large, one covered with leather. Will quickly be known for a stranger by his accent, having but very little of the English language. He calls himself Lamberte, but he is presumed to have changed it very often. It will be for the good of society to stop such a man, for it is thought that he will is not the first time that he has played the same game. So there you go. <laughs> so uh, that's kind of a wide, very specific <laughs> description, yeah. you know, to kind of describe somebody in the newspaper. Um, and so I, I find it funny that uh, people did not see, you know, they, they found their humor in everyday life, and, and that's what that really point of that story basically is trying to say um so now we go to the other not deep end because that's last uh, but the middle the middle range here of our odds and ends um andy how many people now you, you just have to guess because i i guarantee you not nobody knows okay <laughs> how many people you think were born in pittsburgh or allegheny county that later went on to become mayors or governors of other states and cities. Sixty-five. Well, that's a good, a uh, good guess. But uh, and you could say that, I guess, about people who've been involved in government in general. But uh, believe it or not, there was that almost that many people, uh, either born in Allegheny County or born in Pittsburgh or old Allegheny City. And uh, I'll give you a couple examples. Uh, the mayor of San Diego, the 21st mayor of San Diego, the 12th mayor of San Diego, <laughs> okay, uh, William Hendricks, the governor of Indiana, okay, 
the lieutenant governor from 1902 to 1907 of Iowa, was born in Allegheny County. Um, the William F. Johnson, who was from Westmoreland County, became the Pennsylvania governor. Okay, John Henry Kincaid, the governor of Nevada and also the first governor of Alaska, born here in Pittsburgh. William Carr Lane, he was the first mayor of St. Louis and the third governor of New Mexico. <laughs> so uh, another man born in uh, Allegheny City, Gary Leitzel, was a mayor of Dayton, Ohio. E.W. Marland was the governor of Oklahoma. John Martin from Fayette County was the governor of Kansas. Elliot Morgan was the Wyoming governor, Arizona governors, Iowa governors, again. Um, Mayor of Anaheim in the 1970s, John Seymour. He was born in Allegheny County. Um, John Tenner was a governor of Pennsylvania, so on and so forth. Well, John Kasich recently is is from McKees Rocks, and he's the governor of Ohio or former. Well, that's right. I mean, so that's just a little list of governors and mayors of other types of towns. Uh, congressman's the same way. I mean, you, Orrin Hatch, he's from Pittsburgh, you know, uh, that's, he's a Utah Senator, right? California Congressman, chairman of the ways and means committee from 1898 to 1913 was from Pittsburgh. Uh, John Kasich, of course, Ohio, Ohio Congressman and governor, uh, Philander Knox, you know, U S Senator, uh, also the United States attorney general and secretary of state, another, uh, Kentucky Senator, Rand Paul, right. Mm-hmm. And, and his father, you know, Ron Paul. Uh, both from the McKees Rocks, or right, McKees Rocks, or where were they from? Around Pittsburgh. Or my, th- I guess I'm thinking of um, thinking of Kasich. I'm thinking of Kasich, yeah, being from McKees Rocks. But still, I mean, the govern- uh, Congresswoman from Rhode Island in the 1980s, Claudine Schneider, Congressman's, uh, I mean, all over the place. It's ridiculous. I had no idea that so many people born here in Pittsburgh or Allegheny County and Allegheny City went on to do um, all these uh, huge government positions. And, like, you think you, you know, we know of a few. We know of, like, David L. Lawrence eventually became the governor of Pennsylvania or, you know, a little bits here and there, uh, or the ones that are still living. But uh, a lot of times people just forget just how many came before. I mean, you had um, people who were involved in the U.S., uh, the White House cabinet for John Tyler, Harding, Coolidge, Hoover, um, Lincoln, of course, you know, Edward and Stanton was a secretary of war under President Lincoln. Uh, Judge William Wilkins, who we've talked about, Wilkinsburg is named after. Friendship is all comes from his house. He was the secretary of war under President Tyler, right? But then the weirdest fact about politicians from Pittsburgh uh, that I found about was uh, how many ambassadors do you think? So we, we know oh, Dan Rooney. Rooney. Yeah, Dan Rooney was ambassador to Ireland, right? But was he the only one? Probably from, not. From Pittsburgh to be an ambassador of a uh, to another country? No. <laughs> Ready for this? Homer Ferguson, ambassador to the Philippines. Walter Ford, ambassador to Denmark. Mark Gilbert, ambassador to New Zealand. George Guthrie, ambassador to Japan. Uh, William Irwin, Denmark. Andrew Mellon, you know, of Mellon Bay. Yeah. He was the ambassador to Great Britain from 1932 to 1933. <laughs> um, Alexander Pollock Moore, uh, ambassador of Spain and Peru. Um Edith Sampson, the first African-American in the U.N. and NATO from Pittsburgh. Uh, Adolf Schmidt, ambassador of Canada in 1969. Uh, Phyllis Talbot, ambassador to Greece. And William Wilkins, that same judge. He was the ambassador to Russia from 1834 to 1835. Yeah, William Wilkins is the judge that said that Santa Claus is a 
living entity or a, a that real would be person? Judge Michael Mosmano. Oh, I'm sorry. Now, Judge Michael Mosmano, of course, would later be the judge at Nuremberg. <laughs> you know, so it's not like it was a uh, some kind of uh, joke. You know, uh, position. Uh, and speaking of jurists, <laughs> okay, you had. Uh, I mean, ones that, let's see, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. Let's say 15 federal appointed judges, all being born and raised here in Pittsburgh. Uh, many judges of the Supreme Court, George Sarah's, um, the state Supreme Court, Pennsylvania Attorney Generals, Attorney Generals from other for other states, all from Pittsburgh. I mean, it's just nuts <laughs> um, to think that. I mean, the good thing about this and learning about this, and, and I wish I knew about this when I was, like, in school um, and knew that, like, oh, so you're telling me that there was this huge list of politicians or people that were born and raised here that would later go on to serve with Abraham Lincoln, you know, with uh, with all these, you know, become the Secretary of State or, or become a ambassador to Peru, <laughs> you know? Like, I didn't even know these things were impossible when I was in school. Well, and, and that's, like, one of the things you think about when— for example, the, the the first name that comes to my head is Hillary Clinton. Mm-hmm. It was a senator from New York, but she grew up in Arkansas. And so right. your first instinct is like, well, how can she be a senator from New, New York? York? Right. But then you have all these people that were from here, like Orrin Hatch and Ran and right. Ron Paul, that became representatives and governors and senators. From all over. From all over. And it's just... You know, isn't that cool? <laughs> so, it, it's not a new thing, basically, yeah, yeah. to relocate and become exactly. I, I thought that was cool. How you have a little bit of Pittsburgh, you know, and almost every part of uh, American uh, formal governmental history, uh, which just surprised me. Just no president yet. <laughs> no president. We only yet. have um, in Pennsylvania. No is, James Buchanan is the only U.S. president we've ever had from Pennsylvania, which is strange because we're one of the original. I mean, we're the second state to yeah. join the union. Right. And James Buchanan from Cove Gap, PA, is the only U.S. president we've ever had from Pennsylvania. That's crazy. I mean, uh, I'm sure some of these people could have qualified, you know, and if I'm sure they chose to ran, uh, probably could have done. I'm sure this William Wilkins, I mean, based on his character, just reading about him and knowing a little bit more about who he was uh, in the 1830s, probably could have become president if he wanted to. Uh, Andrew Mellon kind of tried. Uh, so you know, people do try. Um, now we have Mark Cuban. He's like basically our best chance. Basically, <laughs> you know, yeah. I can't think of anybody. That's... Right, right. Uh, but we also have uh, some famous people who were in, uh, you know, uh, Secret Service and and state, you know, state police, oh, yeah. and, you know, local police. Of course, uh, the dancing cop, you know, who was in, uh, you know, the traffic, famous, uh, the traffic cop, uh, candid camera episode, you know, Vic Sienka, you know, but um, also uh, Thomas Delahante. He was one of the people who took a bullet for President Reagan during the assassination attempt in 1981 from Pittsburgh. Yeah. So, like, there's little Pittsburgh connections uh, all over the place. He's got no kind of Yeah, when Hinckley tried to shoot him outside that Hilton in D.C. That's right. The whole catcher on the rye deal, you know. So it's crazy. Uh, but, yeah, there's so much uh, out there. He's got to know where to look. I mean, that that's just the list of government officials. I mean, uh, I, I couldn't even have a ream of paper in the printer big enough to print musicians. Or, or actors, or football, or baseball, or hockey. You know, um, so many people that play baseball. Um, there's hundreds of them that were all born and raised here in Pittsburgh, but yet have never played for the Pirates. Well, I mean, and that's a lot of the thing that you do is it's not necessarily it's not hidden knowledge. Like right. you do find things that are kind of you know 
being rediscovered for the first time in 100 years. Mm. But that's that's fact. That's out there. You can find that who was a senator and where they grew up and who was a representative and right. who was from Pittsburgh. No one's ever really but you just don't together, really you know. think about it. Right. Yeah, you don't you know you don't you don't really think about it. I think if you didn't think about it, you know, if you were given this information at a younger age, uh I, I it could inspire you to um do something with that knowledge, you know, or inspire you to even say like, "Well, hey, if the, all these people can do it, I can do it too," right? Uh that's the ultimate goal. Um I I always talk about uh you know, hopefully these types of stories and facts and stuff can inspire you, the listener, someone to to go out and seek out the information for yourself. You know, I'm merely your teacher, you know. Uh, I'm not uh, some kind of um, a prophet or something, you know. I, I, these are interactive stories, stories that you need to help participate with. You know, if there's truly giants out there, like we say there are, um, prove me wrong. You know, do the research yourself. Find out some more. Let's really get to the bottom of the story. Let's Break into the it. Carnegie. And... <laughs> right. No, don't do that. Yeah, don't do that. And our last story, probably the weirdest and oddest one of the bunch, uh, the, the ends of the odds and ends, <laughs> comes to the story of the little town, or big town, I guess you could call it, of Mount Pleasant, Westmoreland County. So are you familiar with uh, Mount Pleasant? Not very much. Um, well, we are kind of. We go to the uh, Renaissance Festival, right? That is in Mount Pleasant, PA. Okay, it's on the road. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's on the road to go to Mount Pleasant. Uh, right, th- Literally, not even 10 minutes down the road is the main hub. Well, um, did you know that Mount Pleasant originally was called Helltown? I think you may have brought this up before in a previous episode, but we didn't really expound on it too much. Yeah. Now, I be, pre- uh, be prepared to be expounded upon because this tale is so weird and so strange. Now, granted, I might be taking a lot of this uh, kind of out of context, maybe. Maybe. But maybe not. And let me explain. Because the official history of Mount Pleasant, the, the borough and the township of Westmoreland County, do indeed come back to this this this. Thing from 1820, okay, the town was apparently founded, um, was originally called Helltown, and that uh, it was called that because it was a, a, a stop on the stagecoach kind of route through western Pennsylvania, and people would like stay there for the night, and it was kind of a lawless town, and you had like all these violence and crime and all that type of thing that go along with it, and you know, down by the railroad tracks, you know, uh, Braddock apparently marched through there at one time in his army, and there were stories about that, but um, but it was all said and done, this story that gets passed down, including the official history of Westmoreland County is where the story comes from. Okay. In 1876, there was a history written about it. And it says that, um, one day a man was coming to town, a businessman, and I uh, went into the local bar and said, sir, what do you call this town? And the bartender said, why, this is called Helltown. And the man replied, uh, well, that's such a silly name. Why don't we call it, uh, you know, I had to climb up a hill and it was kind of like a mountain, you know, it's called Mount Pleasant. You know, it was a pleasant view and pleasant uh, thing, you know, and and we'll just call it that, you know. And the bartender was like, I, th- I think I agree. Let's go t- tell the town elders or whatever. And, and in 1820, officially, they uh, incorporated as Mount Pleasant Borough. Okay. And that would be the end of it. Right? Yeah wrong <laughs> um because 
A quick search on what was really going on there has uncovered such the strangest tale uh, I think maybe I've ever came across. And when I say strange, uh, here's a newspaper article from the Greensburg Gazette, April 16th, 1809. Not 1820, okay, 1809. <clears throat> and this, according to the Greensburg Gazette, was the story of how they abolished the name of Helltown and came up with the name of Mount Pleasant. Not from some kind of wandering traveler, um, you know, who just didn't like the name, but because of this specific reason. Now, granted, earlier historians would have a very hard time finding this information out. This is only because of the access to newspaper articles and archives and Greensburg Gazette luckily has been scanned, you know, and uh, I even stumble across this article. And uh, let me begin with the article. In order rightly to understand the object of the following communication, it may not be improper to observe that the little village of Mount Pleasant has by some ways been branded with the opprobrious name of Helltown, and that the citizens here have adopted the following mode of abolishing the name. Whether it will answer the end proposed, we will not pretend to say, but we cannot help expressing a wish that the scorching which his satanic majesty has received may operate as a warning to all children should they attempt to disturb the tranquility of this place. On Monday the 11th, a number of citizens of Mount Pleasant in its vicinity assembled at the hour of 9 o'clock and formed the devil in effigy, carried him into town, attended by a musician playing the rogue's march, and at the hour of 2, burned the idol in the town square, attended by a large concourse of people amidst a discharge of musketry. The intentions of the above was to abolish the name of Helltown forever, and to establish that of Mount Pleasant. So that's pretty weird. Wow. <laughs> yeah, so that's definitely not the story they tell you in the history books. Well, it's like I've said before, if that happened today, that would be all the all the local stations would be there. They would be have they have cameras on it and everything. You think, you know, uh, but you know, uh, it's kind of an unusual way to abolish the name of your town. Um, you know, burning the devil in effigy in the town square. <laughs> um, along with the march and all these uh, weird uh, references to Satan, uh, which is pretty weird. Uh, that is not as weird as it gets. So you ready for this? The Fairview Community Church, which is on Gimlet Hill and Mud School Road in Mount Pleasant today, in the minutes book of the Sabbath school, dated August 4th, 1850, 50 years later, okay, after this story is you know, widely known by people. So generations have already gone by. Mm. A strange phenomenon took place in the town of Mount Pleasant. And this is a direct quote from the minute book of the Sabbath school. Today, an extraordinary phenomenon appeared around the sun. It was seen by the whole school. It consisted of two large circles around the sun, which seemed to join or run into each other on the Eastern and Western sides. Another very large circle West of the sun with the Eastern side of the ring in or around the sun. There also appeared in the eastern an arc resembling a rainbow in colors, which only had an eighth of a circle large. The, the, this occurred between the hours of 10 and 11 before noon, when the sky was beautifully clear and the air pleasant and warm. This created a profound impression at the time of many people in the village who feared what this might have meant. Soon after, a virulent epidemic occurred, causing the death of a member in nearly every family who witnessed the strange phenomenon. It was looked upon as a, sign, a warning sign and as an omen of evil. 
Wow. <laughs> now, let's go back to what the founding fathers of Mount Pleasant said. Um, may this operate as a warning to all children should they attempt to disturb the tranquility of this place. In 1850, as if someone disturbed the tranquility of this place, <laughs> this weird event happens in the, in the sky in the village of Mount Pleasant. Sure enough, the local cemetery, which is also located on Mud School Road, is filled with people who died August, September, 1850. Could have been their way of just, you know, saying that this weird phenomenon in the sky that must have, you know, caused the deaths, but could have just been a literal epidemic. Or like the flu, yeah. Right, something. it could have been a literal epidemic. But it gets stranger, right? Uh, the Mount Pleasant Journal newspaper, December 20th, 1900, page 5. Reverend S.W. Keister, the pastor, will preach his Christmas sermon at the United Brethren Church at 10.30 Sunday morning next, uh, Christmas Eve session. In the evening, he will again pay his respects to the devil, telling of his satanic majesty's origin and power. It's kind of a weird Christmas Eve mass, don't you think? Nothing I've ever been a part <laughs> <You know>? of. <laughs> um, <laughs> ready for this. Um, December 13th, 1882, Mount Pleasant Journal. The observation of the earth to the sun, not to be behind in the enterprise, the journal, Mount Pleasant Journal, at the cost of many thousands of dollars, have fitted out a party for the observation of the transit of Venus, and on Wednesday last, put them in the field to make the most celestial phenomenon for the benefit of science and future generations. The chief staff put the matter in the hands of the local editor, and to him, in connection with his foreman, the satanic majesty, the devil, in quotations, are due to the important results which were obtained. What does that mean? Wow. <laughs> okay. Um, you think it stops, right? Uh, September 21st, 1886, a cruel mother. Last Thursday morning, Mrs. Julius Kreger took one of her satanic spells and amused herself by tossing her babe into the street. Um, so what is that about? <laughs> is this town... Mount Pleasant, a.k.a. Helltown, legitimately have some kind of bizarre satanic connection. I haven't heard anything recently about it, but in the past couple oh, of years. Oh, you haven't. But... You haven't, have you? Huh? 2005, Mount Pleasant, PA. Four men stole, killed, butchered a goat so they could trade its meat for crack cocaine, the police said. Authorities charged four men with theft, receiving stolen property, Cruelty to the animals and criminal conspiracy. James Walter Walter dragged a four-year-old pygmy goat from its pen with a rope tied to it and tied the animal to a shrub, where he then performed a satanic ritual with Charles Smith and killed the animal by beating its head with a hammer and steel pipe. Oh, never mind. Yeah, and it says the men took the goat to Smith's residence, where his father <laughs> skinned the animal and cut it up into pieces. 2005. Wow. Okay. Uh, yeah. So that's pretty weird. Um, the, 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 the only other big thing that happened there was uh, on a Wednesday morning, okay, in January of 1888, the worst mining disaster to have ever occurred in the United States happens within Mount Pleasant, PA. Over 100 men killed. 
Mammoth number mine, Mammoth mine number one of the Frick Company is the scene of the death. Pocket of gas causes calamity, it says. <laughs> okay. Where I'm going to leave you with this story, and it's open to interpretation because it is that bizarre, that weird, that these strange connections um, are seem to be happening there. Now, I actually, when I first came across the story a few years ago, uh, reached out to see if there's some kind of like official, you know, dark church or something. And if they knew about this and they didn't, they said, they're glad they told, I told them, <laughs> you know? but, um, they, they don't, they don't know what's going on. Um, there is some haunted locations there, but nothing really that, you know, this bizarre, but it's definitely a story to ponder. And here's, here's the kicker to this whole story. 1809, right? It's Helltown. And, you know, in 1900, right? There's 1850. There's all these other dates. 1886. There was all these mentions of Satan and everything. Randomly, randomly. Okay, United States issues zip codes for the first time in 1963. Zone improvement plans. Zone improvement plans. Take a wild guess what the zip code of Mount Pleasant, Pennsylvania, is this day. I have a feeling there's a couple sixes in there. One five six six six. How about that? Wow. <laughs> yeah. So, more odds and ends to come some other day, but today we will leave you with these stories. And I, w- I do want to leave you with one last poem. One last poem. And I, I I don't think I read this before, but I have to read it again because it is another little tidbit. It's tiny, tiny little poem. From March of 1924. My city of friends. Some call my city a great aggregation of mills where a smoke cloud eternal ascends. Let me suggest a more fit appellation. Why not call it Pittsburgh. The city of friends, a city of friends, as I have ever found it, a great heart within human kindliness blends. No poet am I to weave romance around it. I just call it Pittsburgh, my city of friends. Good heartsome Pittsburgh, oh well do I know it. From its glowing hearthstones a welcome ascends. I'd sing its glory were I a great poet, the big open heart of my city of friends. And without further ado, that's it for Pittsburgh.